0: Hello, and welcome back to another installment of Closing Arguments. I'm your host, Ryan Ruff. We've got John Razimich, or Jack Razimich, as most people know him by. Uh, he's standing by. He'll be joining me momentarily to get a you know new you know criminal law-related conversation on the books here today. Uh, but look, first we want to thank you, our audience, for being back with us here on the second episode of the show. Uh, you know, If you missed last episode, I would highly recommend traveling back. Check that first episode out. Not only do we get to kind of peel back the curtain show you a little bit of the, you know, give you some insights into Jack's life personally and professionally, his upbringing throughout the state of Indiana, but also his extensive experience practicing criminal law throughout the greater state of Indiana, as well as a a handful of some of the cases that he's dealt with over the past few years. Uh, Additionally, you know, we had a great conversation to kick the show off. We dove into fast and speedy trials and all that that entails. We also took a dive into forfeiture specifically. So a lot of pertinent course cases have been moving along throughout the state of Indiana. We t- we touched on those with respect to fast and speedy trials as well as forfeitures, but today we've got a different conversation lined up for you. So if you're with us here on the Facebook Live, we so appreciate you being here live with us today. Feel free to leave a comment or even a question down below throughout the course of the show. Jack and I will be monitoring you know that chat. Uh, if we see any questions come through, we can do our best to acknowledge them and uh, answer them to the best of our ability. But either way, uh, you could even just tell us where you're watching from today. Either way, great to have you with us. And if you're checking us out on YouTube, maybe a podcasting platform. Uh, Hey, all the same. Great to have you with us here uh, on the second episode of Closing Arguments. Now that being said, we've got a great topic lined up for you today. It's a topic that most of us are familiar with, but maybe not the inner workings of this topic specifically. What I'm talking about are the Miranda warnings. We're going to dive into what they are, you know, how they came to fruition, how they've evolved over time. And then one of the bigger themes that we're going to be addressing towards the you know back half of the show is how these Miranda warnings have really made an impact on the police interactions you know police's interactions with individuals uh, on a day-to-day basis so that being said let's go ahead and get today's conversation started by bringing Jack out Uh, Jack how's it going good to see you welcome back
1: well it's good to be back it's I feel like uh, I feel like we need theme music I know I know we've got music at the (laughs) beginning and the end of the show it always feels like I need that Bob Barker curtain call type thing
0: (laughs) right we'll get some we'll get a soundboard get some effects going soon. Uh, hey, but either way, great to have you back with us. I'm super excited. We were just talking before the show that this is really a topic that you're passionate about. You're excited to get going here on the show. Uh, we, we held it off until the second episode, so thanks for doing that. Um, but hey, I think to get today's conversation rolling, I think the best place to start is uh, you know kind of that 10,000-foot view, if you will, of the Miranda warnings. Could you start off, for anybody who's not familiar with them, give us that 10,000-foot view. What are the Miranda warnings?
1: Sure. And for those of you who haven't heard of the Miranda warnings uh, before, you know, welcome to the 21st century. There's a lot of great television that you can catch up on. That's where most people know the Miranda warnings from. Uh, very briefly, the Miranda warnings are the advisements that a police officer is going to read to a suspect before questioning them. They they can vary in wording very slightly between states, um, even sometimes between jurisdictions. Uh, each, each police agency will usually give out its own pre-printed card to their officers. Uh, The one that I have is from the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, which is right here uh, where our offices are located. It's a pre-printed card, and and the card has the advisements on them in order. Uh, It states uh, that you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to consult with a lawyer before answering any questions and to have a lawyer with you during any questioning. If you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be provided for you free of cost if you desire one. And during any questioning, you may decide at any time to exercise those rights and not answer any questions or make any statements. So very briefly, that's what your Miranda advisements are. That is, uh, that, that almost always is read verbatim from a card, as I said. It can vary slightly between jurisdictions with regards to the wording, but that's the central holding what the Miranda warnings are for a person.
0: Got it. And and I I think, you know, the next question that begs to be asked is, is where did these come from? You know, where did they come into play within the, you know, criminal law as a whole? Uh, you know, where was their, your, you know, their inception into this whole realm?
1: Sure. During the 1960s, during the uh, the Lyndon Johnson administration, there were a number of efforts at uh, social reforms, um, cleaning up the way the government worked, interacted with with its citizens. It was referred to as the Great Society. One of the things that the Johnson administration looked at was how uh, citizens interacted with the police and how they understood their rights vis-a-vis the rights of the police, and, and that got reflected through a number of the decisions that the Supreme Court made during that time period under, uh, under the, uh, the, the leadership of Chief Justice Earl Warren. Specifically, with regards to what we know as the, Miranda, as the Miranda warnings or the Miranda case, that came about as a result of a case from 1963 in the state of Arizona. Back on March 13, 1963, Ernesto Miranda was arrested for the kidnap and rape of an 18-year-old woman approximately 10 days earlier. And that was based off of circumstantial evidence that connected him to the crime. So they arrested Mr. Miranda and they put him in an interrogation room. And if you've ever seen um, an old movie or, or even an old Looney Tunes cartoon where they'll have someone in a room and they've got they've got that really bright light on them <laughs> right. and they're just kind of grilling them for hours... That's how interrogations used to go. It's exaggerated for the theatrical effect, but that's what would happen. If, if they thought you committed a crime, they would pick you up. They would take you to the interrogation room, and you sat there until you told them what they wanted to hear. In Mr. Miranda's case, um, Ernesto Miranda was interrogated for uh, two hours. At the conclusion of the interrogation, Miranda signed a confession to the rape charge on on pre-printed forms that included the type statement, I do hereby swear that I make this statement voluntarily and of my own free will with no threats, coercion, or promises of immunity, and with full knowledge of my legal rights, understanding my statement can be used against you. It seems straightforward, but the problem is, uh, Miranda didn't actually know what his, his rights were. So what happened is at the trial, Miranda's attorney asked that the confession be suppressed, but he was denied. Um, Miranda was convicted uh, as charged, and he was sentenced to a term of imprisonment between 20 and 30 years. That was how Arizona uh, did their sentencing ranges back in the 1960s, is a, a term of imprisonment of not less than 20, not more than 30 years so he appealed that decision to the 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 conviction to the arizona supreme court Uh, the arizona supreme court upheld the admissibility of his conviction on the grounds that there was not a a specific and clear declaration that i want to have an attorney Um, which unfortunately is going to be very important for a case that we discussed I think 46 or 47 years down the line on that. Uh, but for right now, what ends up happening is the decision is the confession is valid. The conviction is valid. And uh, Ernesto Miranda and his attorneys turn to uh, the last possible opportunity they had, which is the Supreme court of the United States, which agreed to accept uh, jurisdiction over the matter and, and hear it more fully.
0: That's interesting. But so that being said, okay, here we are. We're moving to the Supreme Court level. Walk us through how this case unfolds at that level with, with such an interesting verdict, you know, kind of on the line here.
1: Sure. The way the case played out, it, it, it's kind of fascinating. There's there's a lot of talk these days about how incredibly divided the court is and how everything is a very narrow decision that flips one way or another. The Miranda versus Arizona case, which is easily one of the most important cases in the history of the criminal jurisprudence of the United States, was decided on a 5-4 basis. Um, So it was it was very, very narrow. It was it was decided on a 5-4 decision uh, and the, the ruling was handed down on June 13th of 1966. And what what came out of that is, is the Supreme Court held that Miranda's confession was involuntary. Uh, on the basis that he had not been informed of his rights. Chief Justice Earl Warren uh, wrote and issued the decision, which found that the person in custody must prior to interrogation be clearly informed that he has the right to remain silent and that anything he says will be used against him in court. He must be clearly informed that he has the right to consult with a lawyer and to have that lawyer with him during the interrogation. And that if he is indigent, a lawyer will be appointed to represent him that right there formed the basis of what we understand as the Miranda as the Miranda warnings and it's largely been unchanged since the 1960s as i said you're right. going to get a little bit of you know minor changes with the wording and the phrasing but that's that that is effectively what the Miranda warnings were uh, the court also found the second part of the warnings that if the individual wish indicates that if the individual indicates in any manner at any time prior to or during questioning that he wishes to remain silent, the interrogation must cease. If the individual states that he wants an attorney, the interrogation must cease until an attorney is present. At that time, the individual must have an opportunity to confer with the attorney and to have him present during any subsequent questioning. So those two sections of the decision form what we understand the Miranda warnings to be. That's, that is how that came about. They, they basically lifted that verbatim and preprinted those cards and started handing them out to the officers.
0: Wow. So, uh, so here we are, monumental decision, re- a five, four monumental decision reach at that Supreme court level. Uh, you know, it's, it's really changing the landscape of how a police officer goes about doing their job on a daily basis. Talk to me about kind of the, the fallout of, of this decision and what this meant moving forward.
1: It was not pretty is, is perhaps the <laughs> polite way of phrasing it. I can it. imagine. Um, we again, fortunately, we did not have the internet back in those days. I can only imagine how how much worse it would have been. Earl sure. Warren was already not a very popular Chief Justice with certain segments of the population uh, because of decisions that he was responsible for a decade earlier with regards to uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Um, Other civil rights era uh, decisions that that struck down uh, segregation laws, uh, mandated integration, things of that nature. So this is just more gasoline on the fire to that concept. the there were editorials kind of running from coast to coast that were claiming that the decision was going to lead to nobody confessing to crimes ever again, and murderers and rapists were going to be getting off on the streets and you know lock up your lock up your daughters lock up your wives it was so horrible the streets are going to run with red with blood um, so for everyone who thinks that that the concept of sensational media is a modern invention um, I, it, at least. Sixty some years ago, they were every bit as as doom and gloom as everything else sure. was. Um, believe it or not, there were there were even some editorials that that very seriously argued that it was unfair to advise suspects of their rights. So, you know, kind of kind of take that with a you know. Anytime you think about how how your preferred media is presenting an argument these days, at least no one is arguing that you shouldn't be informed of your rights. <laughs> uh, which was something that the press was very seriously doing back then. Um, I, I will say that, you know, they, they, some of the other fallout that, that came from this really kind of seeped its way into pop culture. And uh, you can see this in, in of all places um, there were Dick Tracy strips back in the 1960s that, that took shots at this, like, like late sixties, early seventies strips. There were, mm. um, there there were Dick Tracy strips where, where Tracy, who of course, for, for those of you who, who don't know who Dick Tracy was, it's a comic strip that that started back in the uh, late 1920s, like 1928, 1929, I think. Um, he's a he's a police officer and there was there were a number of jabs that, that Chester Gould took at the Supreme Court and at Earl Warrant through the Miranda warnings. Probably the most popular probably the most popular public consciousness of the Miranda warnings would have come from the revived uh, dragnet television series where you had uh, Jack Webb playing uh, Detective Sergeant Joe Friday of the Los Angeles Police Department. And uh, they very quickly integrated the Miranda warnings into every time Joe Friday interacted with a suspect. And that's Mm -hmm. that's kind of how understanding the Miranda warnings became as widespread as it did over the last six decades. Um, That being said, for all the public knowledge of the Miranda warnings, for all of the, uh, the doom and gloom regarding um, how people were never going to confess again or how you know no one was ever gonna be arrested or, or convicted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I can tell you that in the 16 years that I've been doing this, um, overwhelmingly I get more questions about, they didn't read me my rights, is that wrong? um compared to someone who legitimately was read their rights and still decided to immediately go and confess to whatever it was. so uh, as it, all, all the naysayers were wrong. Um, they, it's 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 still a situation where people are more than happy to confess to crimes or sure. they
0: well, let me ask you this. So, so we saw, I mean, you had mentioned the social developments in that we started seeing the Miranda rights become apparent in, you know, t- television media as a whole. And that was kind of a way of, oh, educating society on this, you know, these new Miranda warnings. That being said, were there any legal developments or like legislation that was maybe built around these once they came into play that kind of shored them up, if you will?
1: Not really shored them up. More of an effort to kind of get around them. Um, oh, okay. The, the standard the standard for whether a confession was voluntary, it, I, I don't want to make it... I know I was, I, I was half being facetious earlier with regards to uh, old movies or old cartoons where they'd stick you in a hot room, stick a light under you, and try to sweat mm-hmm. a confession out of you. Uh, as I said, that was an exaggeration. It, it is still... It has a basis in truth. Um, confessions were very much in the power of the police. That's not to say that you still didn't have protections. A confession always had to be voluntary. And the standard that the courts would look to prior to the Miranda advisement or the Miranda warnings was, uh, they would look at the totality of the circumstances to determine whether or not the confession was voluntary. So being in an interrogation room for two hours or four hours or 12 hours, Um, if the police aren't beating you, that might still be considered a legal confession. Um, if you're in there for 30 minutes and you, you know, you walked in there under your own power, but you, um, are being kind of carried out because you've been given the rubber hose treatment, that's probably going to be an involuntary confession, Mm -hmm. um, But the totality of the circumstances is what the court would look at to determine whether or not there was a a voluntariness of the confession. So what the U.S. Congress did, because again, we're dealing with a 5-4 decision, uh, Congress in 1968, so two years after the Miranda versus Arizona decision is made, Congress passes the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, which is an effort to directly address the Miranda decision. And the 1968 Crime Control Act attempted to impose a standard of the totality of the circumstances in determining whether or not the confession was voluntary, which is that standard that we talked about before. It's worth noting that as, as a matter of legal principle, that standard would have only applied to federal proceedings. Uh, it would not have necessarily uh, applied to state proceedings because the the federal the U.S. Congress, of course, can only legislate how uh, federal trials the federal evidentiary standards are, are taken. So this the the act gets passed, um, and, and their justification for the act is that if you actually read the Miranda versus Arizona decision, which is a a very, very long decision there. Um, I, I believe it's it's one of those like 67-ish page decisions. Um, there's a lot of justification for how they got to the Miranda advisements. There were, uh, I believe, two dissenting opinions that were in uh, attached to the decision as well. Um, the argument from the Congress and, and from even some legal scholars is that the sections where Chief Justice Warren describes what suspects need to be told represents uh what's referred to as as dicta. dicta is the technical term for it it means that the court is sort of just going on about this is how i think something should be or this is my opinion on it but it doesn't have the force of the law it's not it's not actually the decision um hmm. in effect the argument the argument was that chief justice warren was making constitutional recommendations not constitutional requirements so uh, it, it sits there just like that for almost 30 years. And, and in 1997, there was a, a federal defendant by the name of Charles Dickerson, who argued that his, his uh unmirandized confession uh, is, was inadmissible in a uh, drug trafficking case. And uh, the US attorney who, uh, who was overseeing the prosecution in that case made the argument that, well, as it turns out, we have this 1968 statute that says that the standard in federal proceedings is totality of the circumstances, not whether or not you got your Miranda advisements. Um, So your confession comes in too bad. Um, That got appealed. The fourth circuit court of appeals, which uh, had jurisdiction over that particular court um, agreed. And, and it looked like there was a really serious issue that was going to affect the Miranda case. Mm -hmm. And uh, that got picked up by once again, it got picked up by the Supreme court of the United States. And this time, in a seven to two decision, so we're still not unanimous on this. In a seven to two decision, um, the Supreme Court of the United States basically said, "Look, we understand that the way that the this, that the decision was written, you could make a very valid argument that um, this is is dicta, that this is not controlling law. This is a recommendation." But it's been 34 years. Everyone knows what the Miranda warnings are. It's in pop culture. It would be a significant upheaval of the social order to declare something that has been relied on as law for more than three decades. So we are going to say right here and affirmatively that the Miranda warnings are constitutional requirements, not constitutional recommendations. And uh, you would think that that would settle the matter. Even though it was just seven two, you would think that would settle it.
0: But it's—I'm getting the vibe that it didn't. So, so talk to me. Where, when, what was the next kind of test of the of the Miranda that words?
1: is? Yep, yep. It's uh, it's never done. the uh, the, the law is uh, the, the law is often very uh, very zombie-like in the sense that when you think that something is done, it uh, magically manages <laughs> not be done. The most recent major Miranda decision that has come down the pike uh, came down about 11 years ago in uh, 2010 in what was another 5-4 decision um, in, in the case of uh, Bergeus, which I, if I'm mispronouncing that poor woman's name, I apologize to her, assuming that she actually listens to this podcast, <laughs> um, Burgess Ber, versus Tompkins. Uh, another 5-4 decision, what that decision held is that it doesn't matter how long you're silent in the face of police questioning. For your rights to be recognized by the court, you need to unequivocally and clearly state that you were exercising your rights. And what happened in the Tompkins case is uh, is Mr. Tompkins um, was picked up on suspicion of a crime uh, he was stuck in an interrogation room. He was um, you know, he he was genuinely read his rights. He, they there was no question about that. He was read his rights from the pre printed card. Uh, he refused to respond. He, he didn't respond to any questioning. Uh, they interrogated him for a little over an hour. He just sat there, you know, arms crossed, you know, not saying a word. Um, and then in response to uh, I, in, in response to a random comment. All of a sudden, he starts talking to the police at that point in time, and um, what the decision that came out of that was is, well, he was told about his rights, and then he started talking. Mm-hmm. So, to exercise your right to remain silent, you have to actually say, "I am exercising my right to remain silent," which seems counterintuitive if you've just been there silently. Right. So that's that's the most recent case that i am aware of uh regarding how the miranda case has been addressed and attacked the important thing to remember is is none of these decisions are are unanimous you know the Mm -hmm. miranda decision itself was five four right um the the um dickerson case that was seven two uh, and that was just basically trying to affirm that an earlier case was decided correctly they still couldn't get a unanimous decision Mm -hmm. and then the um the Tompkins, the Tompkins case. That's case. also five four. Yeah. Uh, there, there were other cases in there too. There's, there's actually, there's the the, the fun fun thing about uh, Supreme Court decisions is just because the Supreme Court announces something doesn't mean that there's not going to be a concentrated pushback at trying sure. to chip away with it. And there have been a lot of cases over the last um, sixty years that have, have kind of carved out exceptions to the Miranda requirement, kind of chipped away mm-hmm. at some of the protections. Um, there are a lot of legal scholars that, that think that the Tompkins case, for all practical purposes, um, gutted the Miranda case. Now, personally, I think that's a little bit hyperbolic. That's not that much better than those newspaper reporters who said, no one's ever going to confess again. Right. Um, it, is, it is kind of silly, though. If the court is going to say you have this right, but they're going to also say, if you want to exercise this right, you need to affirmatively state you're exercising this right. It becomes one of those like, well, is it, is it really a right or is it just something that I can claim at a future point in time?
0: Sure, sure. So this whole thing began with Ernesto Miranda. Whatever happened to that guy? What, you know what What happened to him after this monumental case went through?
1: Amazingly enough – for all of the for all of the effort that went into this case being changed for all of the hand wringing that the police and the press and the politicians were doing it changed absolutely nothing <laughs> um as as a result of the decision what what supreme court decisions do when the supreme court decides it, it's very rare for the supreme court to basically say hey this case is now done there's nothing that left left that's happening with it What normally happens is is a Supreme Court, whether the US Supreme Court or a state Supreme Court, will say this part was done incorrectly, go back and do it correctly this time. So the case goes back to Arizona. Um, They try Ernesto Miranda a second time and on March 1st, 1967, so a little over over a year, a little under a year, right about that same time um, from the actual Miranda versus Arizona case gets decided he is convicted again Uh, so even without his confession they had enough evidence to actually convict him so his situation didn't change um they sent him back to prison for the exact same term of imprisonment a term Mm -hmm. of imprisonment for for 20 to 30 years um he actually got paroled in 1972 and spent a great deal of time kind of hanging around bars in in the phoenix area uh, selling signed Miranda warnings cards for a dollar fifty, which um <laughs> that that was I don't know, that so might be like key. the equivalent of, of five, ten bucks a day. I don't know. But you sure. know, that he he made kind of a living as a little bit of a local celebrity. Okay. Um unfortunately for him, he he you know, he he kept finding himself in the system. He, he would get picked up on, on various petty offenses over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately he was, uh, he was killed in a bar fight in, uh, in, in 1976, he was stabbed in a bar fight on, on January 1st, 31st of 1976. Um, it's, it's unclear as to whether or not he was, was the instigator, whether or not he was mm-hmm. purely the victim. um, but that was that was the end of him. Uh, the the police showed up
0: and wow.
1: read read his killers Miranda warnings, and there you, go. Uh, you know that's that's if this were a Twilight Zone episode, that's where Rod Serling would show up and and talk about the irony of everything.
0: Right, you want to talk about irony there? I mean, so let me, let me ask you this: that here it is, this monumental court case changes the landscape of how police are going to be interacting with people. Then on a regular basis. So I want to shift now kind of into really our second theme of the conversation today is, is police interactions as a whole. Could you walk me through when a police officer then is now required to read the Miranda warnings? I believe there are kind of two types of interactions. Could you walk me through those two?
1: Sure. There, there are two types of interactions that you can have with the police and it it sounds very basic and very flippant, but it's legally accurate. There is what's referred to as a voluntary interaction with the police and an involuntary interaction with the police. A uh, voluntary interaction with the police is anything where you agree to speak with an officer, um, agree to respond to an officer's request to do something like like search your person or search your car. That's gonna be a great subject we're gonna get into here in a few weeks is the concept of the Fourth Amendment on this. Mm-hmm. Um, But those types of voluntary contacts, if an officer says, hey, I'd like to speak with you, and you agree to speak with the officer, that's gonna be considered a voluntary interaction. Um, Your involuntary interactions are going to be situations where you are, are what's referred to as detained. If you're not free to leave, it is not a voluntary interaction with the police. And and that line becomes kind of blurry based off of how the interactions do or don't go. You mm-hmm. can have a you, you can have an interaction that starts voluntarily, that becomes an involuntary interaction based off of whatever those issues come up as. Sure. Uh, and that's that's kind of just the quick and quick and dirty of that. Um, as far as when the Miranda warnings are required you are required to be provided with your Miranda rights. If you are the subject of a custodial interrogation and a custodial interrogation is a subset of that involuntary encounter. If you're not free to leave and they want to ask you questions, that's where you would normally be required to be given your Miranda warnings before proceeding forward.
0: Got it. Got it. So, so walk me through then. Um, you know the the custodial interrogation process and when maybe and i'm sure you probably get this you know in questions from your clients you know when might be the most strategic you know point to you know invoke your your rights you know to to request that lawyer to request that attorney walk me through that custodial interrogation process
1: sure the where we tend to get where we tend to get the most questions from the people that we help about the Miranda warnings and whether or not they've been given their Miranda advisements usually will come after a person has been pulled over uh, while they're in a car, such as if they're pulled over for speeding or, you know, failing to signal lane change or any of a variety of different things that a police officer would stop a car for. Uh, And, and then it moves from that initial traffic stop, to a criminal investigation for something along the lines of uh, suspicion of drunk driving or suspicion of possession of narcotics. The first major exception that the courts allowed to be created for the Miranda advisement is if you are the subject of what's referred to not sorry, let me rephrase that. If the questioning falls under the category of what's referred to as a community caretaker function and a a community caretaker function is it it, it, those are questions that the court has judicially decided represent kind of make sure there's not an emergency situation going on so questions like where are you coming from where are you going um, those are considered to be community caretaking functions because the officer wants to make sure that you know, you haven't just run away from a traffic accident or a shooting or something like that. Um, Have you been drinking? That's one of those things that that is considered to be a community caretaking function because if you are potentially intoxicated. They don't want to let you back out on the road. Exactly. Uh, Questions about, you know, do you have any weapons or drugs in the car? Those are going to be considered community caretaking functions as well, because Mm -hmm. if the officer needs to Call in other officers, or if there's a security arrest, that's that's considered to be community caretaking. Right. So those are non Miranda situations, right there. Mm-hmm. Um, where a where a case becomes a custodial interrogation, it, it's a very fact sensitive situation. Um, the standard in Indiana is whether or not a person. Um, a a reasonable person under the totality of the circumstances, because we can never get away from the totality of the circumstances of the law (laughs) would believe that they were actually free to leave. Sure. So, um, you know, in, in a situation where the police come to your house to question you, the expectation is, well, you're in your own home. You didn't have to let them in. You voluntarily let them in, you know, yes, there were three of them and they all have guns that you can see, but you didn't have to let them in. So we're going to consider that to be a voluntary interaction as opposed to the custodial one. The fact that they might've arrested you anyway, well, that's just too bad. It gets really interesting with these DUI cases because with the DUI case, you're pretty clearly not free to leave. Right. You know, if you, if you tell the officer uh, I'm not getting out of my car, I think I'm leaving right now. They're going to, at that point, at that point in time, it's now unequivocal that they're detaining you. Mm-hmm. The question then becomes one of, all right, so does that now trigger a Miranda advisement? Um, Are you entitled to an attorney before submitting to chemical tests? Uh, The answer to those questions does not seem to be particularly favorable for defendants, Um, but it's again, it's a very developing area of case law. Most of your custodial interrogations, it's usually very clear that it is a custodial situation. If you are making a statement at the police station, it's pretty clear that you're in custody. Right. Uh, we we had one case, um, one of one of the jury trials that we, we that we have managed to do so far this year. There was an interesting back and forth between myself and the detective on the witness stand as to whether or not uh, my client was at the police station voluntarily. and And the detective kept trying to argue that, well, of course he's here voluntarily. You know, I asked him to come down to the station and, um, and and he voluntarily came down here with me to talk to me. And it's like, okay, um, did he, you know, so did he drive under his own power? No, I brought him with me. Okay, did you take him in handcuffs? Well, I have to handcuff him in safety in my car. It's like, okay, was the police station anywhere near where his car might have been? No. Would you mm. have taken him back to his car? No. Mm. So, you know, that... That really much looked like an involuntary statement. So the fact that right. j- just just because the state says you're not in custody or the police say you're not in custody, again, that totality of the circumstances is pretty clear that if you are, you know, if you're alone in a police station, you know, miles from your car and you were brought there in handcuffs, um, that's not really voluntary at that point in time. And and right. arguing that I left the door open so that he knew he could leave. It's like, well, where's he going to go? You, you've got sure. him handcuffed.
0: Sure, sure. So to me, what I'm gathering from a lot of this, Jack, and this is all super helpful information, is it sounds like it's two big questions that you need to ask yourself when when facing a situation with the police is, A, is this a voluntary or involuntary experience with them? Am I voluntarily giving them what they want? Or am I, you know, involuntarily here under their will giving them what they want? Or You know, at that point, do I request a returning? So on and so forth. And then the second is, am I free to leave? It's these two questions that you might have to go through in your head. Is there anything else that somebody should be ultimately considering when, you know, if the the police come knocking and they need to speak to the police for whatever reason, whether it is getting pulled over for a, a speeding ticket, whether it is them showing up at their respective house? I I'm sure it fluctuates from location to location. Of course, it's circumstantial, but. You know, basically, can you bottom line it for us? What should someone do when asked to speak with the police?
1: As a practical matter, unless you yourself have called the police out there, they're probably not there with your best interests in heart. Sure. Um, Even, even the, and again, I I don't want this to become a political firestorm in the comments or anything like that. Most police officers are doing their job and they're doing it properly. They aren't out there intentionally trying to ruin lives, but they do have a job to do. And that job is to close cases by making arrests. Mm -hmm. And they want to get to that point as quickly as they can. And one of the ways they can get to an arrest quickly is if someone admits, hey, I committed this crime or I did this, or I have something to talk with you about. Um, If you yourself did not call the police, the best thing that you can do is tell them, I don't want to speak with you without an attorney present. You're not going to make the situation better. If the police are focusing their investigation on you, they have either already decided that you have committed this crime and they're just looking for more information to make their case stronger or they may think that you had something to do with the crime and they're going to give you an opportunity to say something that justifies arresting you. Um, the, police are, the police have special training in questioning people. Um, they, they, they go through classes about how to conduct interviews, uh, what to look for, how to kind of uh, use very basic psychological techniques to get people to talk. That's where you get that concept of the good cop, bad cop routine mm-hmm. from. Um, And the other thing too is, you know, most people, you know, they're, they're not used to being questioned by the police. Sure, Uh, You know, it's, it's not something that happens on a daily basis. So you've got, you've got an extremely unusual situation. Mm -hmm. Um, you've got the situation where there's the mental panic of, you know, did I do anything wrong? Well, I didn't do anything wrong, but do they think I did something wrong? Is that why they're here? Do they think I did something wrong? Right. It's hard to think clearly when you're panicked like that. Of course. Um, Of course. We're, we are here as attorneys specifically to not be panicked for you. That's, that is literally our job is to keep that from happening. Um, That's, that's not to say that the, the police officers are going to um, you know treat us any better. I've, I've had police officers that um, absolutely despise the fact that I was not letting my client talk to them. Uh, the difference between the two is they are a lot less likely to convince an attorney that everything is just gonna go away if you tell them what happened. Uh, versus, you know, someone who is desperately trying to find a way of not going to jail right then and there. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you have a right to remain silent, and you need to use it. it a right that's not actually being exercised is a useless right. It, it, it doesn't matter at that point in time. And sure, like I said, the, you, you had the case. You you have that the 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 Tompkins case from. Uh, from 2010 that says Mm -hmm. hey you know we're we're now going to say that you have to very deliberately say that you're exercising your right to remain silent yeah don't let them win it it, it gets it just gets down that simple if the situation is you have a right it's not a permission it's it's a right it's something the government can't take away from you Mm -hmm. and you need to exercise it you need to exercise your right to remain silent it's going to, even if they arrest you right then and there, it's still better for you not to have given a statement that's going to make your situation worse. It's always better to let your attorney know what's going on, have your attorney do your talking for you and kind of control that situation. Because a lot of times, uh, especially in in higher level felony cases, a lot of times evidence is circumstantial. It, it was all circumstantial in, in Ernesto Miranda's case And that's not to say that you can't be convicted based off of circumstantial evidence. You absolutely can. But there's no reason to make their job easier. Their job is to convict you. So not giving them ammunition, not giving them tools, that is the best thing you can do for your situation.
0: Roger that. And and Jack, to, to bring our, our conversation really to a head here, you know, in addressing the Miranda warnings at the beginning, now we're, you know, knee deep in police interactions as a whole. Let's combine the two. What would happen if, you know, you're you're being arrested for, for X, Y or Z, you know, thing and, and then the Miranda violation or a, just a Miranda violation as a whole occurs and maybe your warnings are not read to you in one of those involuntary situations?
1: Honestly, the effect is pretty limited. Um, okay. What the Miranda advisement does is the Miranda advisement lays out the rules for when a confession is going to be admissible as evidence against you at trial. If there is a Miranda violation, all that means is that they cannot use your confession or what they purport to be your confession as evidence against you directly. That means that they would not be able to put a detective on the on the witness stand to testify you know, John Smith admitted to me that he held up that bank. That would be forbidden. That would be a forbidden use of that. That does not mean that they couldn't still try John Smith for holding up that bank if they had you know, security footage that showed uh, a person with a tattoo on the back of his hand that just so happens to look a lot like the tattoo that, that John Smith had. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't mean that they can't put eyewitnesses to the bank robbery on that says, you know, the suspect was about 5'10 with red hair and and that man over there looks like the person that robbed the bank. Those Mm -hmm. are still things they can do. They just can't use the confession as evidence where they can still use the confession potentially is for what's known as impeachment purposes. Um, Impeachment is a process at trial where if you make a statement at trial and that statement is different from an earlier statement that you made, you can use that earlier statement to attack a person's credibility. The idea is, were you lying then or are you lying now? So if if a defendant makes a statement that would not be admissible under Miranda, but he takes the witness in and he says something completely different, at that point in time, the statement can be used for impeachment purposes. It's not used Mm -hmm. as evidence that he committed the crime. It's being used as evidence that this person is not trustworthy because they've changed their story. And that's really what th- that's, that's what would happen if there was a Miranda violation. It is, it is rare in my experience that the only evidence of a crime is a confession standing by itself. Usually a confession or what purports to be a confession is one of multiple things right. that are part of the state's case. It's undeniably the easiest part of the state's case. Don't get me wrong. I mean, if mm-hmm. you have a witness or if you have a suspect who says, I did it, you can kind of probably not worry about doing a lot of the rest of the investigation. You might need to otherwise. Sure. Um, there is, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to make a note right now about confessions <laughs> because there's a lot of situations where people confess their crimes that they don't do. um, but there, there is this there's this prevailing attitude that people don't confess to things that they didn't do. And if you put that type of a confession in front of a jury, that's that's like listening for a .08 in a DUI case. You hear the magic number, you hear the magic phrase. Done. So sure. that's that's again why why providing statements, why talking is not usually in your best
0: interests. Right, right. Well, Hey, that being said, uh, you know, Jack, is there anything else in regards to Miranda warnings or just police interaction as a whole, maybe anything you could just bottom line for us as the do's and don'ts, if you will, uh, of, of when walking through a police interaction that, uh, you could share with us before we, before we say goodbye to our audience today.
1: Uh, first, 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 don't, don't break the law again. Let's, let's be very clear with that. Sure. (laughs) None (laughs) of, none of these are, none of these are designed to be tutorials. Um, you know, so again, it, it, try to avoid breaking the law as, as best you can. Um, if you come into contact with the police, just because you're exercising a right does not mean that you need to be a jerk about it. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Tell them very clearly, you know, if 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 they are asking to speak with you if I, I guess I guess here's kind of the concept if they ask to talk to you, they're always going to try to put this into the context of a voluntary interaction over an involuntary interaction. Because a voluntary interaction, Miranda doesn't apply. If you're talking to them voluntarily, anything you say at that point in time is admissible. You know, if you walk up to a police officer and say, hey man, just want to let you know that I robbed the gas station 15 minutes ago, thanks. That's a confession, you know, or if the officer says, hey, you know, I want to ask you a couple of questions about that gas station robbery over there, and they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't think you would catch me that quickly." That's that's a confession at that point in time that doesn't require Miranda because sure. you have just voluntarily interacted with the police. So, you know, I, I guess the first thing would be if the police asked to speak with you voluntarily, um, you know, just tell them politely but firmly. Um, I, I don't want to talk to you, you know, am I free to go or am I being detained, but don't be snotty about it. Um, because they can, they may not be, they may not necessarily have probable cause to detain you, but if you're a jerk about the situation, um, they can kind of make it a little bit more uncomfortable for you, a little bit more unpleasant, just kind of be very polite and say, Hey, you know, nothing personal. I don't want to talk to you. You know, if, if you want me to talk to you, I need a lawyer present and they usually let it go. Uh, we actually offer a, a program here at our office for people who are in that situation where uh, they've been told, uh, hey, the police want to talk to me. I don't want to talk to them. I want to have an attorney do this for me. Uh, we actually have a program that we refer to as our platinum defense program where uh, we'll basically make those calls for you. And we'll stand between, we'll, we'll act as a shield for you and stand between you and the police and tell them, hey, you know, he's not making any statements on my advice and my recommendation. I need you to direct any future contact to my office. We'll get everything taken care of for you from there. Uh, and, and that's a program that a lot of people are happy with. It gives them that sense of security, that sense of well-being. Sure. Um, but all things being equal, just just be very polite, be very firm. Say, I don't want to talk to you without an attorney being present. Um, they, they may, depending on the detective detectives are like other people, the end they may rant and they may rave, they may argue that you're making the situation worse or et cetera, et cetera. Or they may just say, you know, thank you. I understand, you know, we'll be in touch with you if anything changes and that's it. But definitely you need to exercise your right to remain silent one way or another.
0: Sure. And Jack, final thing here, if anybody is a interested in that platinum defense program or uh, just learning more information as a whole from, you know, whether it's you or your office, where should they go? Where can they find that information? They can
1: find um, information. Uh, The best thing to do are we have case evaluations. Case evaluations are always free. We're always happy to talk to anyone who has questions about either this topic Uh, An ongoing criminal case they've got now, a past criminal case they have questions about. The main telephone number for our office is 317-983-5333. Alternatively, if you just want to look at um, any of the topics that we've covered or dealt with or or, uh, talked about in the past, Uh, Our website has a significant amount of information regarding not only the Platinum Defense Membership Program, but other areas of law that we practice in, as well as a blog that's been going on for about two or three years at this point in time. So there's quite a bit of information there, too. Uh, That website is uh, lawyersreadytofight.com. Just one word, lawyersreadytofight.com. That's our main website. And uh, if you decide after you're there that you want to contact us, uh, our telephone number and our email addresses are there as well.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, Jack, fantastic conversation today. I I know there's a lot to unpack within Miranda warnings and how they spell out, you know, uh, spill out rather into our daily interactions with, you know, police officers and whatnot. But look, really appreciate your time today. And hey, I'm already looking forward to the next conversation we'll have together.
1: Same here. We'll see you next month.
0: Alrighty, And hey, look, we want to thank you, our audience, for joining us here for today's show. If you liked what you saw, you liked what you heard, remember, comment, subscribe to the show, Uh, you know, share this information with friends and family. Each episode, Jack and I are tackling a unique avenue within criminal law. We'd hate for you to miss out on any beneficial information that could help you out in the wild one day. Well, look, for Jack Razimich, I'm Ryan Ruff saying so long. And we thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Closing Arguments.